dear listeners, today's episode will be unlike any episode you've ever heard before. And the reason that that is, is twofold. One is that Michael's power went out in the middle of us recording this episode. And so it's just going to be me, the first ever episode with only one Hi, How Are You co-host on it. So embrace that. And the second is because of the wonderful guest that we're going to have on our show, who I will introduce now. On the show today is Rebecca J. Epstein-Levy. Rebecca is an assistant professor of Jewish studies and gender and sexuality studies at Vanderbilt University. An expert on sexual ethics, she uses unconventional readings of classical rabbinic text to study the ethics of sex, sexuality, disability, and neurodiversity. In her copious free time, she enjoys cooking unnecessarily complicated meals and sharpening her overly large collection of kitchen knives. She lives with her wife, Sarah, her cats, faintly macabre, and Chroma the Great, and a rapidly expanding flock of wire dinosaurs and other beasties. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? Chava, thank you for having me. I am doing pretty well. Happy to be on this podcast. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Baruch Hashem. I'm well. Uh, you know, it's like quite a topsy-turvy experience to have the power go out in the middle of the episode and not have Michael. Before you came on the show, I was getting ready to tell Michael about a funny experience I had today where I was in a Zoom meeting waiting for everyone else to join, and I was idly flipping through those all those weird Zoom filters they have where you can put different things on your face and one of the filters they have is you can put a mustache or a beard on yourself which doesn't work very well and each of the mustaches and beards have a name like um handlebar you know or whatever but the name of one Mm -hmm. of the models is podcaster (laughs) and what exactly does a podcaster mustache it look was like, pray tell. very like um john waters style mustache so it's a uh, real sleazy yeah really sleazy so it's good to learn that zoom has an opinion about podcaster mustaches and it's not afraid to share it with the world we are on the show here today because you wrote this book called when we collide sex social risk and jewish ethics which we here on the show read and loved so much. Tell me about this book. Tell me what it's about. Tell me why why you wrote it. Tell me about it. Well, so the longer version of the story is that this book has its genesis in my experience in graduate school, which overall I loved, by the way, I was actually very lucky to have great mentors and a great cohort that wasn't the sort of cutthroat nightmare you sometimes read about. Everyone was really collegial. That being said, there were a number of, shall we say, recovering evangelicals in different (laughs) sub-programs, particularly when I was taking ethics classes. I became sort of very quickly disturbed by the realization that I, a boring married cisgender lesbian, well, I wasn't married at the time, but I was with the the woman who is now my wife. um, Right, right. With another cisgender lesbian, knew simply by virtue of being a queer person in dialogue with other queer people far more about how to use a condom than my married heterosexual cohorts. And that terrified the bejesus out of me, frankly. Right. (laughs) Um, But it, it was more than just that, right? It was also every time I read, I guess, what you might call the standard religious ethics canon on sexuality, both Christian and to a disturbing extent, Jewish, frankly. I just kept coming across people getting things empirically wrong when it came to understanding 
what actual people do sexually with Mm -hmm. other actual people and going off on these abstract flights of fancy about something, something cosmic meaning of sex, something. And I'm like, yeah. And do you actually know where to find a glance clitoris? (laughs) Right. You know, what's the lofty divine meaning of, ow, your elbow was on my hair. (laughs) Right. I bet we could find one if we really tried. We could, but I don't think we're going to find it along the lines I was reading, let's put it that way. Right, right. So that was one angle of the frustration that led me to do what was eventually this book. And then the other angle was when I did read people talking about sexuality in ways that started to actually make sense and account for what real people do, I was still frustrated with the textual approach that I found most common. And this is something that isn't just an issue with Ju- with sexual ethics, by the way. I think this is an, is an issue with academic Jewish ethics more broadly. And there are several reasons for that that I think that we can get into um, if there's time later. But it's probably more interesting to other very niche academics <laughs> than it is right. elsewhere. Suffice it to say, there's this habit in practical academic Jewish ethics more broadly to... A, draw pretty much exclusively from the rabbinic canon, which, okay, I do that too, but there are very good critiques of this over-reliance that I actually Mm -hmm. quite agree with, even if I myself am part of the problem. And B, the way they would go to classical rabbinic texts as their sort of source for normative judgments and reflection is that they would look at, they would try to find a text that seemed to be on the surface about the present day ethical problem they were looking at. Mm -hmm. So we can talk a little bit more about some examples of texts that on the surface seem to be about sex that I think get misused a lot. But um, the upshot is that basically when people weren't being dumb about sex, they were being frustrating about text. And then there were Mm -hmm. also just people who were being dumb about sex. And I couldn't find the book I desperately wanted to read. You know, the book in which I could see my own experience reflected and that also actually got at the granular practical questions I wanted to get at. So I wrote it. Right. Wow. Thank God you did. It sounds like, and, and my impression from reading some of your book was that you know, you had these sort of dual frustrations with both the ways Jews were using texts and the ways ethicists were using sex. I was really intrigued by in in the early part of your book, you talk about this popular idea that Judaism writ large is perceived as inherently more sex positive than most other religions. And you sort of call that into question in a way that I think is really interesting. And that felt just like so relevant as someone doing a Talmud podcast, because a lot of times in the world of queer Talmud, I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we love to find those like sparkly, glittery texts that tell us everything we love about Judaism and that Judaism was always right and the best. (laughs) Um, But eventually you get to a point where you realize that that is a, vanishingly small proportion of the actual textual canon. So yeah, I was really intrigued by your problematizing of that vibe, that sexual positivity vibe. Yes. And it's a frustration that developed over time because, I mean, you know, I think initially at the beginning of my studies on this, you know, I was, and to a certain extent remained, as vulnerable to that desire that you named so well, right, as anyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, if nothing else, emotionally at least, you want the conversation-ending text that you can lob in some asshole's face and be like, booyah. Mm-hmm. That, that's a technical Talmudic term, by the way. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yeah. I know the one. But the thing is, like, 
just tactically, I don't think that's going to work because there's always someone who can outproof text you if they really want to. It's a losing game, and I don't think people with our commitments should try to play it. But I also think it's just not a game that's actually respectful, if you will, of the voices and kind of the living character of these texts themselves and just plain weird world that they take place in. Mm-hmm. So let me actually talk about an example of one text that I think often um, gets deployed as one of these sparkly texts, as you put it. And it's one that I treat in the first chapter of my book. But I would imagine many of our listeners are at, at least have a passing familiarity with the text in which Rav Kahana hides under Rav's bed while Rav is having sex we presume, with his wife. We'll get into that in a second. Oh, yes. We did an episode on this one. Indeed. And, you know, Rav notices and is not amused. And Rav Kahana replies, and this is sort of the nugget that gets sparklified, right? Mm-hmm. It is Torah and I must learn. And, you know, in sort of just that little bit, right, it's understandably tempting to read that as what greater endorsement of the you know, religious, moral value, the theological value of sex, then for someone to say this too is Torah, right? Right, right. And then you start looking at what the text looks like in its immediate context. And you find um, it's actually the third piece in a three-part sequence. The third verse of a song, of kind of a song done in a sort of exquisite corpse fashion. Right, a song of poop and sex. A song of, exactly, um, in which the refrain is, it is Torah and I must learn. And the first two verses, you've spoiled it, are indeed <laughs> the poop part, <laughs> um, involve first Rabbi Akiva recounting to Ben Azai that he once followed his master, Rabbi Yehoshua, into the privy, and he learns three things, and he proceeds to name sort of physical ways of comporting oneself even in the privy. Um that show a kind of sagely mastery over both the receiving of tradition and the comportment of the physical body and even the most sort of mundane and literally scatological circumstances. <laughs> right. And Ben Azai says, you know, you were impudent with the, your master in this way. Like, I'm sorry, you did, you did what to your master? You followed right. him where? Right. Um, and Rabbi Akiva responds, it was Torah and I must learn. And apparently this seems to impress Ben Aza enough that the tradition is repeated basically verbatim to the next generation. Because we then get Ben Azai saying, I followed Rabbi Akiva into the privy, and I learned, and Ben Azai proceeds to name exactly the same things Rabbi Akiva says he learns from his master. Right. And then that's passed, and then it has the same, you followed him where? It mm-hmm. was Torah, and I must learn. And so these two verses are of peace, right? There's direct generational continuity. They're both in Hebrew. They both take place in the land of Israel. And they follow essentially a successful transmission of a certain kind of teaching three generations down. Mm-hmm. Right. And then we get the Rav Kahana text and everything changes. We jump forward in time, what, I think 200 years. One thing I have a terrible memory for is uh, intervals of time. Oh, my God. Um, And generations and such. But we jump forward a significant amount of time. We jump from Eretz Yisrael to Babylonia. And just the whole literary style, you know, even bracketing the fact that we're now in Aramaic and we were in Hebrew changes. So we get Rav Kahana... Um, hid under Rav's bed where he heard him laughing and talking and doing what he required is the mm-hmm. literal All right. translation. We assume 
that translates to having sex with his wife. But it's notable that his wife is only there by inference. Like, she doesn't even mm-hmm. get a pronoun or a pronominal suffix. We just right. infer. Well, if he's having sex and, you know, no one comments on anything other than what Kana is about to comment on, we can infer that he's probably having normative sex, which means sex with his wife. So... Kahana, unlike his predecessors, who we get no indication of saying them saying anything or being noticeable when they're followed, says, it's like Master has never sipped from the dish before, which we can sort of colloquially translate into, wow, that was not what I was expecting from my teacher in bed, which raises the really important question, what were you expecting exactly? Right. <laughs> um, right. But in any case, Rav very understandably is like, the hell? Mm-hmm. Kahana, get out. This, this is not how we do things. And at that point, Kahana busts out the refrain. Right. A callback, basically, to say, exactly. like, this is why I did this. It's I did it because of the same reason those other people did it. Yes. And the tradition, we do not then get repetitions of, and Rav Kahana's student hit under Rav Kahana's bed. It's right. The Stom then goes back to privy practices. Mm-hmm. And I think, so we can almost see it as, we can almost imagine it as like this, Rav Kahana's a stand-up and his joke has just flopped badly. You can hear a little womp womp <laughs> noise before right. going on. Right. So this seems tangent, I, I suppose, like off on a tangent, but I think it tells us some really important things about what this text might be getting at beyond the surface level. Because first of all, the context makes clear it's not about sex. It is perhaps about sort of mundane, extremely physical practices and the ways those practices of which poop and ones having to do with poop and ones having to do with sex are two of them Mm -hmm. are relevant to, you know, how a sage is supposed to shape himself right day to day. But the sort of sequence here makes it really clear to me, I think that before anything else, this text is actually about failed pedagogy, right? It goes from tradition to farce. And instead of you know, a proper lesson on sagely comportment being handed down. We have uh, Rav Kahana literally letting loose with his own undisciplined ejaculation, if you will. Right. And also, like, a, maybe you said this in your book, and, and I forgot it, but also like a failure of sex education on the, on the yes. behalf of Rav. Yes, because it, it would seem like if Rav was to teach Kahana anything, it was, don't be a fucking peeping Tom. <laughs> right. right. Right, or like create an appropriate space for the conversations yeah. about sexual halacha to happen. Right, and it's not as if like this, you know, frank conversation about any number of things is unheard of in a number of other places in the canon. Mm-hmm. But either Rob didn't do it or he didn't, it didn't stick. And, you know, when you think further, like even sort of taking as read, okay, let's think about this in sexual terms, like this is not actually a text that t- that models a lot of good behavior about respectful sexual interaction and sexual communication in the first place starting mm-hmm. with rob's wife isn't even acknowledged by a pronoun right um we then have some pretty massive violations of consent going on not that rav and uh, rav kahana would have had exactly the same concept of consent as we do now but still if we're doing the thing where we read it through contemporary eyes it's not great right yet Despite all these discontents, right, this is a text that I see quoted so frequently in Mm -hmm. the service of the claim that, quote, Judaism is, quote unquote, sex positive. Right. And 
I thought we could do better. Yeah, I loved your treatment of the text in your book. And and I love this whole exploration. It actually really made me explore my own viewpoint as someone who works with text a lot, because it highlighted to me the differences in approach to text. I have sort of wrestled a lot in queer Talmud world this same way that we sort of get texts to fit in whatever shape that we need them to. And in your book, that's something that you justifiably problematize with this text, I think, from a certain perspective that is deeply problematic. And then from another perspective, forcing text to fit whatever shape you want is exactly what the halachic process is and has always been about. And Oh, of course. There's sort of this... um, this interesting dual way of thinking where if you're looking at a text from within that lens, it's like, yeah, we can make this text be about sex positivity if we want. But that understanding would be incomplete without the complementary perspective of that's probably not what its intention was. I wrestled with this a lot as I was writing my teshuva that's coming out this month about Nita for trans women. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cool. Um, wrestling a lot with like it's clear the rabbis didn't intend this for trans women but also i'm gonna make it so they did and both of those can be rather than being contradictory i think be a a marriage of approaches hopefully one more more successful than the marriage of pedagogies in the story indeed and you know i think that i think there's also a difference between sort of retroactively presenting a given text as obviously meaning this thing versus kind of acknowledgedly is not a word, Um, (laughs) but sort of going consciously, maybe. Thank you. I swear (laughs) to God, I'm having so many trouble, so much trouble with words this week, but consciously and sort of with intention and acknowledgement saying, yeah, the rabbis did not and could not imagine this thing in the way that I am understanding it happening. And so, no, these texts aren't about that in their own voice. But these are also living texts, and they continue to exist and have their holiness in dialogue with how people use them. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm sort of consciously saying, I am being consciously and intentionally and carefully revisionist. That, to me, is a different animal entirely. Than, right. than the sort of frustration I'm describing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some versions of this, I think, are a stock and trade of some eras of Daniel Boyarin. I think other, <laughs> I think other, how much Boyarin is the thing I'm frustrated with versus the thing you're describing is a matter of debate. And I think also uh, yeah, really depends on, I think also depends on which Boyarin book you're reading at the time, mm-hmm. right? Right. Like I, th- like, I think, for example, he's actually a lot more intentional and conscious in unheroic conduct that, about this than he is in Carnal Israel, for example. About this, not about everything. Oh, God, no. I mean, <laughs> yes. But he at least sort of acknowledges in some of the preface material, part of what I am doing is exactly counter-reading. I'm being deliberately ac- anachronistic in this right. place, for example. Right. And I don't see that happening in Carnal Israel, even as like, you know, it's a foundational book that we all need to be familiar with. Right, um, right. Going to the sort of opposite direction of your book, you know, in, in this text we just explored, you sort of took a text that is nominally about sex and explained how it might not be or how it might be about more than sex. I also really appreciated in the later parts of your book, 
you taking some texts that seem not to be about sex and making clear how they relate really strongly to sex. Uh, particularly, I'm thinking of your section about STDs and Tuma and Tahara and all of that stuff. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that, that other axis of work that's in your book. Absolutely. That chapter in particular on STIs and Tuma is the one that's sort of the most immediate kind of development from my dissertation. The dissertation was about the um, impurity thing much more fully. When I had gotten to it, I was sort of at the point in my studies where I had figured out that I had the critique of how things were done, but I wasn't quite sure where I was going next. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I know I don't want to do this, but I'm not sure what I do want to do yet. And I had on my um, comprehensive exam list for um, rabbinics and Hebrew Bible, Mira Balberg's uh, Purity, Body, and Self in Ancient Judaism. Mm -hmm. I think I got that subtitle wrong. Um, <laughs> and I remember just being struck as she talked about the really complex dynamics of how Tuma worked, how it interacted with sort of fine levels of intention of social interaction, of context, of perception. I don't deal with this so much in the book, but there was a there's a passage she talks about where the rabbis are um, saying, okay, so there's an impure ring and there's a person. And if mm -hmm. the person swallows the impure ring and then immerses, like they'll become impure because it's touched them in ways that communicate impurity in the process of swallowing it. But if they then go immerse in the mikvah, once the impure ring is in their stomach, they're pure and remain pure until they pass the ring out the other end. Getting hmm. back to poop, we seem not right, to, be able to right. Do that. Um, Thank goodness. Now I have to think of a poop pun for this episode title. <laughs> that sounds not challenging at all. <laughs> um, and it was intersecting with a particular round of frustration I was having with extant writing on um, sexual ethics at the time, which was essentially the claim that sex is risky. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the risks of sex for all but a very specific subset of people make the balance of it, especially given, you know, and this is working in kind of a bio Jewish bioethics vein where the claim is God owns your body. You therefore owe it to God to preserve your body and keep it mm -hmm. well, which that's a whole other episode. There's so much there. But I had specifically read it being um, applied to sex in so the... Um, What's our policy on naming names here? I guess we ju just did name Boyaran, but... Uh, I think go buck wild. Oh, fun. Okay, so Elliot Dorff has done this one more than once, but the version I was specifically reacting to at the time, if I recall, was his essay on contraception in the Passionate Torah, which is a volume mm -hmm. I love, by the way. But he made the claim that because of this obligation to preserve your body, HIV-positive people are morally obligated to remain celibate because of the risks to themselves and others. By 2009, in this essay, he had unbent a little bit enough to say, well, condoms are a distant second best. And I will have to check my dates, but I am pretty sure this is after undetectable equals untransmittable was pretty damn well known in the medical community. Yeah. So he had, he, had, he had no bloody excuse. But aside from being just like wrong on the facts there, I was intrigued and frustrated with just this very con small c conservative treatment of risk when it came to sex. And meanwhile, I didn't see him saying, people are obligated not to take a car places mm -hmm. when there's any other option. Right. And so what I was reading in Balberg, especially when she starts talking about just the ubiquity of different kinds of impurity in the rabbinic world, mm -hmm. um, 
and the fact that if you do desirable social activities, you work dollars to donuts, you are going to interact in a possibly transmissible way with some form of impurity. It's not if, Mm -hmm. it's when. Right. And you don't want to ignore it. You know, you don't want to pretend it isn't there, but you also don't want to freak out about it. And, you you know, you want to come up with a strategy for understanding and diagnosing and managing it. And I thought that was just such a refreshing contrast to thinking about physical risk from social activities. Mm -hmm. And I decided to see how well it mapped onto the STI paradigm. And I was really pleased to discover how well it did. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how much of the laws around purity now I can sort of think of as um, sort of uh, almost progressive sex education, but just for specific ritual, Mm -hmm. uh, for Mm -hmm. specific ritual purposes, because they are quite almost neutral in their relationship to Tuma. Yeah. Which is, I think, a beautiful because in my experience in the Beit Midrash, so many students have such charged relationships justifiably so with the ideas of purity and impurity and oftentimes it feels like i sort of have to concede like that yeah those terms do suck but it's liberating to think of them as like yeah those the the terms can be messy but the rabbi's approach to it is actually less um what's the word ostracizing um (laughs) than uh like our own modern approach to stis in a lot of ways absolutely and we should probably clarify here right that when we translate the hebrew word tuma as impurity we're sort of doing the best of a bad lot of translation possibilities right Mm -hmm. i say purity because it's not as bad as cleanliness translation but it's still a pretty bad translation especially given the later baggage that the english word purity picks up in for example white evangelical purity culture in the united states when i talk about this in my classes i almost always start by asking okay so when you hear the terms purity and impurity what do you think of it's almost always purity culture either Mm -hmm. that or sometimes wellness culture which again it's own it's own episode Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was actually quite shocked in a way, given what I had sort of come to expect with my own baggage around the term, right? Um, mm-hmm. How chill, honestly. And maybe chill's not the right word, but unpanicked um, right. the rabbinic discourse on these forms of impurity was and how unostracizing it was. And even with, so the so the sort of impurity I focus on in the book, which I should say I picked for the dissertation because I hadn't really, because that was one of the tractates in uh, Seder Toharot that I hadn't seen anyone do much about, so I figured I could have it to myself, mm-hmm. is uh, what's called ziva, that is the impurity that arises from either a non-seminal emission or a blockage in the penis. Mm-hmm. Um. And I also want to make a quick translational caveat because I know that in modern Hebrew, Zav refers to the specific STI gonorrhea. And I purposely left the words Ziva, Zav, Zavim untranslated in the book because Mm -hmm. even though, again, with our present day eyes, the symptoms that are described as causing Ziva impurity do indeed sound like a bacterial STI. That's right. not the terms in which the rabbis understood it. They, right. it. Like, it's actually really notable the effect extent to which they did not treat it as a pathology. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by the fact that even something like penile discharge, and it's not that they didn't have the idea of 
sexually transmittable infections in the ancient world, even if they ha- didn't have germ theory to back it up. They People still made the connection between right. having sex in certain circumstances and then two weeks later it starts to really burn while you when you pee. Right. They were capable of making that connection, even if they didn't understand the mechanic of it. Mm-hmm. And given that, it's, it was so notable to me that this was just not treated medically or pathologically, but rather as this is a thing that happens to certain bodies sometimes. Right. And it has X ritual consequence, which we shade in all these ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here is what happens if you encounter this permutation of it. Right, right. And that's what we do. There's no ostracizing baked into the understanding of that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a it's a really novel way to think about it. And now the the sort of third and final axis I want to talk about in your book is the exploration of imagination and sexuality that you do. And in the third piece of your book, you talk about the rabbi's relationship to basically things that happen in fantasy and their implications in halacha and connections to the BDSM community. Um, I'm specifically remembering a sugya about beheading. Can you say a little more about like what's up with fantasy and the rabbis? Absolutely. So there's sort of a dual connection because also the secondary source that I'm drawing on a lot in that section, Beth Berkowitz's um, Execution and Invention and Rabbinic Judaism and Early Christianity, is also one of like the best articulations I've found of the hermeneutic problem that that got me started on the book in the first place because she ta- because the whole first chapter talks about the way texts that are nominally about execution get received and deployed in present and modern and present day debates on the death penalty and you know it comes down to asking questions about well so were the rabbis pro death penalty or anti death penalty and you can almost feel Berkowitz's frustration when she's essentially writing that's not the point Um, So that was the reason I started thinking about that text in the first place. And then as I got into, you know, more into her question of what happens in these rabbinic execution fantasies, I should clarify when I say fantasies, um, the rabbis in tractates like Sanhedrin um, have very detailed descriptions about what kind of execution must take place when, in what context, for what offense. And here Mm -hmm. is the exact order of operations. Right. And again, sort of very detailed down to what the condemned person is wearing, what direction the condemned person is facing at this point in the ritual, and so on. Yet, historically speaking, we are pretty sure that, especially the the Tanaitic rabbis, who are the ones Berkowitz and subsequently I focus on mostly, almost certainly never carried any of these out because they almost certainly did not have the political authority under Roman rule to do so. Right. So what these are are very elaborate, but also in, you know, an important sense, very real imaginings and really scenes, if I want to put, if you want to put it into BDSM context, Mm -hmm. um, scenes that allow them to play with what happens if I act as though I have this power in this ritual setting and go through and embody it in certain ways. Right. And so in that sugya, the parallel is like similar to the ways that people in a BDSM context embody power they may or may not actually have in a wider social context as part of a sexual fantasy. Exactly. And that in turn raises some really interesting questions in both cases about how these acts of imagination and enacted imagination in Mm -hmm. theatrical 
settings, how do those actually represent, you know, the real world positionality of the people who engage in them? One of the problematics, and I use the term, I have this whole pet peeve about the term problematic. Um, <laughs> my research assistant is nodding over there because they've had me in class and they've heard me give this spiel, I think, mm -hmm. at least three times by now. I think problematic itself is a great word in as much as it describes something that has problems that are interesting and worthwhile getting into. And, it, and the meaning creep of the term such that it now can range anywhere from slightly cringe to literal Nazi drives me up a wall. Right. Um, so when I say problematic, I mean, yeah, there are some problems with it. And they're really interesting. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. But in any case, one of the ways that the classical rabbis are problematic that fascinates me is precisely their power liminality. Like they are simultaneously, particularly those who are sort of relating to the rule of the Roman Empire, right? They're colonized subjects of an empire, and they're very aware of their place as colonized others. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, they are at pains to portray themselves as they do not shy from elitism. In fact, they cultivate it and they're at pains to portray themselves as learned elites among other Jews. Mm -hmm. And that's even before, of course, you get into the gendered power dynamics, because this is also this is a learned boys club. Right, right. I've often characterized them as nerds in their basement playing D&D &D during the Taneitic era. That's perfect. I love it. And so they're, they're at once exerting, or at least imagining themselves as exerting. Right. Fantasizing, even, one might say. What, you're, what I'm hearing is that the whole Talmud is a sexual <laughs> fantasy of the Tanaim. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to say no to that. Great. Um, That's how I love to win an argument. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I'll roll with that happily. <laughs> Great. Um, but in any case, so they're, the, they're in this liminal position. And so the ways that they act out fantasies of being able to, as Berkowitz puts it, determine the fate of any Jew. Mm -hmm. It's partly them imagining, and here is what we would do if we were free from Roman rule. Right. Here is how we would take up our rightful place. And right. so it's at the same time an, uh, an imagining of power over their own people and a way of essentially giving a big middle finger to the Romans. I'm, I'm thinking about this framework um, of how to approach narratives like this. And it really makes me wonder if you, if you have a take on sort of a, one of my... One of my favorites slash one of, I think, the most interesting stories that mm -hmm. is not exactly in the mold that you're talking about, but I'm thinking of the sugya on Ben Sorer Umore on Sanhedrin 71a, where the rabbis discuss the execution or lack thereof of the stubborn and rebellious son. Ah, uh, yes. The rabbis basically are like, here are all the requirements. Basically, we never get through them. It's never happened. Jewish courts would never do such a mm -hmm. thing, which feels like, similarly, a fantasy about how power would flow. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious, like, how to reconcile then Rabbi Yonatan's quote at the end of that, which is that, like, I have seen that son and sat on his grave and like where that figures into the fantasy or contradicts it. I love that text. Um, and there, I, there, there's so many different ways you can kind of get into one axis of what that text is doing. Mm -hmm. Right. But it, but it is actually really an amazing text to think about that. The role of fantasy and imagination there. I can think of off the top of my head, two ways to read that end bit, right? The, there never was such a son and there never will be 
yes, there was, and I sat on his grave. The first way to get into it, and the first way to read it, I think, right, is even when a fantasy is a collective one, that doesn't mean it's going to be univocal. Mm -hmm. Um, Right? People, you can have a, a fantasy that takes place on a community level, but people are still going to have different reads on what happens in the fantasy, how it, how it cashes out, um, mm-hmm. where it should go from there. And the second is fantasy is great, but it also can't actually ignore real people. And it can't pretend that even as it is imagined, it doesn't have at least the potential to affect real people in sometimes deadly ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, which like in a certain way, right, um, is similar to the to the claim I make in the book about uh, another classic, uh, the Tanoshel Achnai. So again, mm-hmm, right, right, the actually no words and performances and fantasies do real things in the world, right. and that you know I would say that in some ways the yes there was and I sat on his grave is parallel to the almost aside in the Oven of Achnai where it talks about Rabbi Elias are having his big laser eyes meltdown mm-hmm. um, and mentions oh and three quarters of the crops in the whole world failed. Right. Presumably there's a massive famine. Anyway, back to the soap opera. <laughs> right. You know, this is something a friend and colleague of mine um, has really pushed me to dwell on for a moment is, okay, but let's not forget that also because the rabbis were having this whole fight, presumably a lot of people starved to death. Right. And maybe we should pay attention to those people. Mm-hmm. You know, similarly, okay, we're having this fantasy about here is how we would carry out this obscure, very specific execution command and you know we're kind of showing off our interpretive chops and showing just how much of a reductio ad absurdum we can do and then we're going to actually you know lean on the fourth wall and give you a wink here and say but it's just fantasy right it's just performance right Right. and then someone's like well wait hang on a second so rebbe yonatan an ethicist after your own heart is what i'm hearing indeed although (laughs) i mean i i wouldn't necessarily say that rabbi yo Yonatan, um, you know, I'm not sure I would go and sit on the grave of someone. I hope I wouldn't go and sit on the grave right. of someone I had identified as being affected by a quote-unquote theoretical argument. Right, right. Yeah, this whole this whole lens is making me think about something I think about a lot, which is the question of going back to those glittery, shiny texts, like mm-hmm. some of the things we so love to hold up in Judaism, like Shemitah, like Peya. Mm-hmm all these sort mm-hmm. of social welfare, agricultural laws that we don't really have any archaeological evidence of their practice on a meaningful scale mm-hmm. and framing them in this um, sense of power fantasy is actually like a very um, liberating way to look at, to like ha- stop having to struggle with um, mm-hmm. how they like, what they mean for Jewish tradition. I think that's exactly right. And I think like, I think it's notable that, you know, there are other places in tradition where many of us in any case seem to have less of a problem understanding that kind of imaginative or mythic um, mm-hmm. dimension of it. I don't know how many of us are trying to, f- I mean, it, it, it relates to the whole phenomenon of medical and scientific materialism. And yet I don't know how many of us, at least listening to this podcast, would be that concerned by the claim that there is actually no archaeological evidence that a fellow named Moses literally parted a sea, right? Right, right. Though I have seen plenty of scientific materialist explanations trying to get into it, you know, making Mm -hmm. the claim that, well, you know, in a tsunami, first the water recedes and then, like, sweetie, no, just, no, (laughs) 
that, that right. that's not the point. Learn to read. <laughs> right. Um, but when it comes to Shemitah, we wrestle with it right. in a really different way. Although thinking about it as a fantasy then really makes me wonder what's going on with Prose Bowl as a counter mm-hmm. fantasy to Shemitah. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other episode, as we often Indeed. say on the podcast. This is an elegant place to start wrapping up our episode. So, dear listeners, if you, as most of you, I think, do want to learn about sex, social risk, and Jewish ethics, you should go read this book. Where can people find your book? Yeah, so it's published by Indiana University Press. And so you can search for the title um, on um, Indiana University Press's website. You can also get it through bookshop.org. Or if you really must, you can get it from the Borg. Fabulous. But I would recommend either through the press or bookshop if you can swing it. Great. And again, that title is When We Collide, Sex, Social Risk, and Jewish Ethics. Where can people find you online if they want to follow your work? So people can find me on Twitter. I'm one of those people who is uh, doggedly hanging on even in the wake of the muskening because I am just too irritated by the interface of any of the alternatives. Right. You're one of those last priests still in the temple. (laughs) Exactly so. And it's up for debate as to how wise that is, but it is. So you can find me on Twitter at R-J-E Levy, L-E-V as in Victor I. You can also find me on Instagram under that handle. And you can find me at my brand spanking new professional website um, designed by uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Megan P. Goodwin, also of the excellent Keeping It 101 podcast on religion. You can find that shiny new website, which contains, among other things, pictures of that overly large knife collection Kava (laughs) mentioned in the intro at rjelevy.com. Incredible. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been my absolute pleasure. Baruch Hashem. And to all our beloved and dear listeners, we will be putting out a patron episode later this month with some more behind the scenes stuff. So if you're not a patron already, join us at patreon.com slash chai. How are you? Regardless, we love each and every one of you for the special little unicorns that you are. And Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.